0: So, since we're right at the beginning of our retreat, and since, as we will find in the text itself, the seven-point mind training, that two things are very essential for practice. As Atisha uh, as, uh, as says in Tibetan, at the beginning and the end, there are two tasks. And the first of these is motivation. When you're first setting out, and then when you come to the conclusion of some phase, because it's never really over, but when you come to the conclusion of a retreat, of a session, of a day, then the dedication, kind of the closure, like sandwiching any type of meaningful activity. And so we are really setting out now in our collective expedition, and again, this balance of each of us here in our own individual retreats, unique, with our own schedules, our own priorities and so forth, at the same time... Uh, the very important balance to this is a very conscious awareness that we're here together, we're on the same ship, on the same ship, uh, and we're all here with shared aspirations. But within the shared aspirations, each of us, of course, comes from a unique background. We have our own unique interests and so forth, uh, unique aspirations. And so that's what I'd like to do for this session right now, rather than going back to the mindfulness of breathing. There'll be more time for that. But I'd like to, um, as we're just setting out here, Kind of get our bearings, so to speak, get our bearings, as if we're setting out on a, an ocean cruise, um, to take stock, to just reflect individually, so we'll have 40 unique meditations here, and I invite you here to um, reflect on your own specific and unique reasons for coming here. There are many other things you could be doing, and many of those are very meaningful, but among the very many innumerable options you had, you chose to be here and here you are, you know? And so why? There's so many other things to do. What brought you here? What was the vision, something in mind, that coming here to this place with this teacher, but primarily focusing on the practices, uh, to spend eight weeks practicing shamatha, practicing lojong, practicing this quintessential text of Shantideva? What were, what, have you, what were you anticipating? What was your vision? What good might come from this that you actually aspire for? Right? How is this part of your life's quest, of something you have in mind, of how you love to see your life unfold? What did you have in mind that this would somehow contribute to that? Because obviously, you did, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Right? But to make that conscious. To make that conscious. right? And so with that kind of as the background, what I'd like to do now it will be a guided meditation But the guidance will not be telling you what to think, but rather suggesting questions for you to pursue individually and uniquely. I've taught this practice many times. It's the fourfold vision quest. uh, And I'll give a very brief summary and we'll go right to it. But the the first question is, what is your vision, your own vision, your own unique vision of flourishing, of a good life? of a meaningful life, something you aspire for, your heart's desire, right? And I will contextualize this a little bit in in a way that I find enormously meaningful, and that is as we envision how we'd love to see our lives turn out and evolve mature, develop over the coming months, years, and we may even even be thinking from lifetime to lifetime, uh, there's a whole domain of flourishing, of well-being that I'll call hedonic, and, and when we say somebody is hedonistic, if we say this in English, oh, you're very hedonistic, you know, that's something of a put-down. That means you're kind of superficial, kind of like just focusing on sensual and kind of meaningless desires. Oh, it's such a hedonistic. We probably wrinkle the nose when we say that. Hedonistic. But that's when we go back to the classical Greek meaning of hedonic, uh, or as you'd used in modern psychology, hedonic doesn't mean something to disparage, something that's great, uh, crude, base, demeaning. Uh, and I will define it, because clearly people do, do define it in different ways, and I'll define it very briefly and succinctly as hedonic pleasure, hedonic well-being, or happiness is any type of pleasure, satisfaction, joy that we experience that is in response to some pleasant stimulation. Some, something happens to us, and often it happens to us by way of our senses. We meet a, an old friend, and we're, we light up, we're very happy to see the old friend, so we know that can be a very wholesome thing. Oh, it's, but, you know, it's an old friendship. I remember when I was in, in uh, Rio, the Rio de Janeiro, several years back, and suddenly up, up, up up to um, Anizamba. Anizamba. It was such a surprise, such a delight to see her. Uh, she's been a nun for like 40 years. I hadn't seen her for decades. But just to see her there in the hotel is, oh, how nice, you know. Very wholesome relationship, purely wholesome relationship. It's hedonic. Because had she not been there, that would not have aroused that sense of pleasure of seeing her and renewing our friendship, deepening our friendship. Uh, So I'm I'm focusing on something that's really very wholesome. It's a real spiritual friendship that goes back four decades. That's a good thing. And it's hedonic. You know, the pleasure I derive from seeing her, sitting down and talking and sharing experiences, very meaningful. And it's hedonic. Enjoying a good meal. Enjoying having children. Enjoying a romantic relationship. Friendship. Beautiful sunsets. The beauties of nature. Uh, getting a good job, getting into a university you wanted to get into, and so forth. So I covered a broad spectrum there. Some hedonic pleasures, uh, that is something called schadenfreude, taking delight in somebody else's misfortune, that is hedonic. And that we call that, okay, that's a negative type of happiness. Better not to have that at all. There's a whole broad spectrum of hedonic pleasures that ethically speaking, or karmically speaking, or speaking in terms of spiritual maturation, are just neutral. They're not taking you forward or backward, enjoying a really good meal. Nothing wrong with that, but don't expect that you're going to be a little bit more enlightened after the meal, right? But you'll no, be no less enlightened either, right? It's just, it just comes and it goes. And then there are, there's a whole wide bandwidth of hedonic pleasures that are very meaningful. And I just gave an example. This is a very meaningful friendship. I hope it will continue for, our, I think it will, our whole, our whole lifetime, as long as we're both alive. And so, but there it is, hedonic is arising in response to something pleasant, right? And it often comes by way of our senses, we're seeing an old friend and so forth, but people also will drink alcohol, so whether or not they like the taste, but they like the chemical effect on the brain and the kind of feeling it gives them, that's also stimulus-driven, but it's kind of coming in through the back door, because it's coming by way of brain chemistry, or people who like to take cocaine, illegal drugs, or take other types of legal drugs and so forth. They're getting a stimulation there, it's not something they're seeing coming to meet them, it's coming from the back door, and it's still hedonic. The drug wears off, the alcohol wears off, whatever it is, and there you are, it's over, right? And so for many people, and for I think for many of us, much of the time, so what I'm not doing is saying, we're the select, we're the chosen, we're the special people, and then they are all the hoi polloi out there, the ordinary people, not going there, it's rubbish, right? But for many people all of the time, and for us probably much of the time, when we envision the good life, when we envision, well, how how can I find happiness? Something hedonic comes to mind. I'd like to go to this university, get this job. I'd like to move from this city to that city. I'd like to get divorced. I'd like to get married, whatever it may be. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's hedonic, right? To equate the pursuit of happiness, the good life, with the pursuit of hedonic well-being, is very limited, and fundamentally, it's a gamble. You're going into the great Las Vegas of life. Because How do you know? you know? When we are investing, when we're going out to the world, for whatever it is, so much out there is beyond our control, totally beyond our control, that just by and large, the pursuit of hedonic pleasure, it's always a gamble. You, know, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Right? And so we can ask, well, is there another type of happiness? And the Greeks had a term for it. You probably know it already, eudaimonia, or eudaimonic well-being, genuine happiness is one of my translations for it. Human flourishing is another good translation. But this is, again, a sense of well-being, but it's not simply a pleasure. It's not an emotion. It's something deeper than that, something that can be much more abiding or much more durable than that, sustained than that. It's a sense of well-being or a sense of flourishing that is arising from what we bring to the world rather than what we get from it. Anything we get from the world, meeting a friend, getting a job, money, and so forth and so on, even having children, anything we get from the world can be taken away. right? Whereas that which we bring to the world, almost by definition, just language-wise, If I derive a sense of well-being from something I bring to the world, how can I possibly lose it because the very process was giving it? So I've already given it, you know. The joy of giving a gift with a pure motivation. You simply want to, you know, bring somebody else happiness and you give it and there's some satisfaction at the end of it. Really, nobody can take that away. They may destroy the gift. They may not like it or what have you. But if you offer it with a pure motivation, with no strings attached, no attachment, then that's yours. And so genuine happiness, eudaimonia. that as you envision your own flourishing, and I want to go to the meditation soon, as you envision that, I would encourage you not to overlook the hedonic, because of course we'd like to be in good health, we'd like to have very meaningful and happy relationships, we'd like not to be impoverished, and so forth and so on. All that's very much part of it. But that we then consider, but what is the point of hedonic pleasure? It's a question I think rarely asked. What's the point of having good health? I don't know, not a question you'll come up, you'll, you'll encounter very often. What's the point of having good health? Is it an end in itself? If it is, well then good luck with that because good health won't last. One way or another, it wears off. You'll, you'll grow out of it, you'll get old enough, it will pass. Or you'll get injured, you get sick. So good health, good. But if it's an end in itself, pretty limited. What's the point of having affluence? Nothing wrong with being wealthy or having, certainly had, having adequate means. But what's the point? What's the point of getting a good job? Was that it? Because you'll lose it sooner or later. So what's the point? What's the point of having a marriage? Is that it? Is that what it's all about? Now my life is full because I have a good marriage? Or having, what's the point of having children? Is that it? I've passed on the, the genes. The human race will be perpetuated. And so when we ask this question, and I think it's a very deep question, Um, I'll give an answer from the wisdom traditions of the world and not just Buddhist. But the point of hedonic well-being is to provide us a platform, a foundation, a ground, a basis for pursuing, cultivating, realizing genuine happiness. One is a means to the other. So having children, it's not to say that children are our tool for getting something we want, but having children can be a means now within the whole context of having children that we have children in order to provide them with their hedonic well-being, but also in this whole network of parent-child relationship, husband-wife relationship, and so forth, that the hedonic is for the sake of providing your children with genuine happiness, right? What's the point of an education? Yeah, provide the children with the skills, the means to make a living, but if that's all it is, I mean, one could say, so what? So you made a living. I mean, are we supposed to get up and applaud here as if something really remarkable and wonderful has happened? What's the point of making a living in order to find meaningful life? Genuine happiness, flourishing. So I am being a bit suggestive here. I'm leading the witness. But as you envision the good life, I would encourage you, because I can't imagine everything I'm saying here is alien or foreign to you, that the hedonic has a place, has a very important place. If you're hungry, if you're really hungry, if you're impoverished, there's really for the time being nothing more important to you, right? You don't want to meditate. You don't want to get a good Dharma talk. Uh, you'd really like some food. If you're ill, what you'd really like probably is, can I get the, med- the, the medical treatment I need? That's what you really want most, and so forth. So there are, the hedonic must never be disparaged, overlooked, as if it's somehow insignificant. At the same time, if we take it as an ultimate end, I find something very precarious there. And to my mind, I'll now just speak the truth from my perspective, unsatisfying. If that's all I can look forward to is hedonic well-being, then I say, no, I'm sorry, but I need another plan here. I need another option. And happily, Buddhism provides this, Aristotle provided it, Christianity, Hinduism, and so forth. The wisdom traditions of the world have responded to this deeper question of how to truly flourish and what does that mean. Okay? So, we'll have four questions. First, your vision of flourishing hedonically and eudaimonically. What is your vision? Not a template It's not getting the right answer, getting your answer. And then as you hold that in mind, almost like holding it in suspended animation in your mind, holding that vision, we call it in working memory, then as you recognize your interconnectedness with the world around you, that we really cannot even survive without the people around us, other, the environment, and so forth, then the second question will be, what would you love to receive from the world, from other people, loved ones, strangers, the natural environment? What would you love to receive from the world around you in order to realize your vision of flourishing? Second question. Third question, how would you love to transform, to evolve, to mature, to grow as an individual in order to realize your own heart's desire? And the fourth and final question is, what would you like to offer? Because I think all of us here, I I doubt that there's one person here. Who's so self-absorbed that it hasn't occurred to us what might we offer to the world around us? Just gimme, gimme, gimme! I don't think there's even one of you. Of course, we want our own flourishing, we want our own well-being, but also there must be in the mind already. What would you like to offer? What would you like to give to the world around you? You know, so, and what would what would bring you the greatest satisfaction? And so, His Holiness the Dalai Lama once raised this point that. Um, if you're going to be selfish, at least be intelligent about it, you know. So, enlightened self-interest is a term we use in English. So, even as we think of offering our very best to the world, it's not meaningless. It's not a deviant or errant mistake to think, for, for the, for, to bring my own life, to bring to my own life the greatest possible sense of meaning, of satisfaction, of fulfillment. Seeking this very benevolent, but self-centered way, for my life, for my well-being. How could I bring that, make it as, as rich, as meaningful as possible? What could I offer to others, right? So that's the fourth question. So this is all basically a meditation on loving kindness for ourselves. And, it's, and this is classic Buddhist practice. Cultivate loving kindness, good. Begin with yourself. So banish all thoughts of low self-esteem, self-hatred, and all that toxic attitude towards self start with this whole foundation in loving-kindness for oneself, bring wisdom to it, and then we'll let that sphere of loving-kindness extend beyond our skin, out to our loved ones, out to our friends, out to society, out in all directions, without boundary, without barrier. That's the vision. And this will come up repeatedly in the seven-point mind training. But that's where I'd like to go right now, to this practice. Some of you are familiar with it. Others who are not Know that there are no right answers here. It really is just making very conscious your own vision of your flourishing and how, how this might come about. So please find a comfortable position. So Atisha, the originator of the seven-point mind training, says at the beginning, establish your aspiration, your motivation. It's almost like setting out on a long, uh, long ocean voyage, but, but having your navigation charts. and Where are you going? What's your direction? That's what we're doing here. So in this meditation, we'll also be setting our motivation for this retreat. A good time to begin as we begin the retreat itself. We we'll begin this session as we began this morning, and began begin each session to come by preparing the body, speech, and mind. First of all, the body settling in its in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. And when we say natural state, it means that it's not already configured in one direction for one type of task versus another, but we establish it in the state of dynamic equipoise, ready to remain still if we wish to remain still, ready to embark on any type of meaningful uh, adventure. The body is poised for action, but also poised for inaction as we choose. It's a natural state. Then in order to establish your outer speech, your actual voice, as well as the inner speech of the mind in its natural state, a state of effortless silence, in order to facilitate that, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm with every out relaxing the body, releasing the breath fully releasing any thoughts, images, or memories that come to mind. Then in order to settle your mind in its natural state, allow yourself, grant yourself the freedom for the brief duration of this session to set aside all mundane concerns, all hopes and fears concerning the future and the past. Allow yourself the leisure and the opportunity to let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment. For just a little while, attend to the sensations of the breath throughout the body, gently arousing your attention with each in-breath and relaxing with each out. In the context of Buddhism, loving kindness or maitri in Sanskrit, is defined not as if, not simply as a feeling or an emotion, but above all as an aspiration—an aspiration that we may find happiness, both hedonic as well as eudaimonic—and find the causes that lead to such well-being. So, in this spirit of loving kindness, first of all directed to ourselves. I invite you, first of all, then, to recall what was your vision? What did you have in mind? What aspirations did you have in mind in deciding to come here to this retreat? Now, of course, our aspirations can and do change over time. They may may become wiser and wiser as our insight deepens. So now bring your awareness right to the immediate present. What is your vision today? How would you love to see your life unfold? What is your vision of finding genuine happiness, a sense of meaning, of flourishing, What is your heart's desire? As you hold this vision in mind, in this spirit of loving kindness, aspiring for your own happiness, aspiring to cultivate the causes leading to such well-being, with every out breath, consciously arouse this aspiration. May it be so. May I find the happiness that I seek and cultivate the causes leading to it with every outbreath, as if you are breathing life into this vision. Arouse this heart of loving kindness for yourself. Rather than holding this vision as some distant goal, use your imagination and breath by breath, imagine realizing here and now the fulfillment of your own innermost aspirations. Now move to a second question. In the same spirit of loving kindness, ask yourself, what would you love to receive from the world around you? From those who are near to you and those who are far, in the short term and the long term, what would you love to receive from the world around you to enable you to realize your heart's desire? With each in-breath arouse this aspiration, may it be so. May I receive all that I truly need in order to find the fulfillment, the sense of meaning, the happiness that I seek. With each in-breath arouse this aspiration of loving kindness for yourself. again moving into the realm of possibility with the power of imagination imagine here and now reality rising up to meet you moment by moment, day by day, week by week providing you with all that you truly need to find the the fulfillment that you seek imagine it to be so here and now to the third question. In order to realize such fulfillment, obviously there must be transformation from within and not simply a lot of help from outside. So in the same spirit of loving kindness, envision now how would you love to transform, to evolve, to grow, so that you may find the fulfillment that you seek? From what qualities would you love to be free? With what qualities would you love to be richly endowed? Once again, with every out-breath, arouse the aspiration. May it be so. every out breath imagine it becoming so here and now imagine becoming the person you would love to become now let's bring, the fourth, bring to mind the fourth and final question and that is in order to find the greatest possible meaning and fulfillment satisfaction in your own life with this awareness that our lives are entangled with everyone around us as well as the inanimate environment imagine now drawing from your own unique background your skills, your interests, your abilities. What did you uniquely love to offer to the world around you? What is the very best you could offer? Such that when your life is coming to an end and you're looking back upon it, you'll have that sense, that confidence that this was a life well led. and you can die in peace, satisfied that you've offered your very best, what would you love to offer to the world? With every outbreath, a rousy aspiration. May it be so. May I offer my very best. With every outbreath, again drawing from your imagination, imagine here and now, offering your very best to those around you who are near and far in the long term and the short. And release all imaginings, release all aspirations, and for just a moment let your awareness come to rest in its own nature. Simply being present, aware of being aware, and be still. So, I don't have any real clear plan right now, but I think over the next eight weeks, we'll periodically come back to this practice. And then you can see for yourself how it uh, changes over time. Because there's no, no such thing as getting the right answer and then sticking with it through thick and thin. But just seeing how you develop in a term I've, I've, I like, I've coined it, I find it useful, Cognitive intelligence. Cognitive has to do with our desires, our aspirations, our intentions, and then intelligence, kind of self-explanatory, that we become wiser and wiser in our aspirations, in our goals, our motivations, our ideals, um, and so that we get a real fusion of skillful means and wisdom. But now, without further ado, what I'd like to do is this, this afternoon, still having some time for open discussion, just give a very brief introduction to this text that we'll be spending four weeks on. Again, among uh, original Tibetan texts, I don't know of any offhand that is more widely studied, practiced, taught than this seven-point mind training because it's embraced by all four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, it goes back to Atisha, who was really living there in the, um, to the 10th and the 11th century from 19, 982 to 1054. A great Indian master, great by all standards. He was renowned in India as a great scholar, a contemplative, a great bodhisattva. And so he was the one that brought this, these teachings, synthesized these seven points of mind training, and they were written down later on by Chekawa Yeshe Dorje, who lived from the 1101 to 1175, so more than a century later, so he was an indirect disciple of Atisha. He wrote them down, kind of formalized it in, a, in, the, in the form of a text. And again, I don't know of any texts that's more commonly taught, practiced, and studied than this one, because again, because it's covered, it's, it's, it's praised, it's, it's been revered for a millennium, uh, by practitioners from all of these traditions. And so it focuses on what is the very core of Mahayana Buddhism bodhicitta, relative ultimate bodhicitta. If you don't know what those words mean, you soon will as we look into the text. Uh, and just bri- very briefly, the, the lineage behind that Dondumba was, um, it said that he had 60, he's, he trained under 60 gurus, so a tremendous erudition. And those that, uh, the, teach, the, the teachers, the lamas, the gurus from, uh, from, uh, whose teachings fed directly into this were Maitriyogan, Dhamma Rakshita, and Serlingba. So he synthesized the teachings from these three, and then he passed them on to his principal disciple named Dom Dumba, uh, who is regarded as a previous incarnation of the Dalai Lama. Dom Dumba on to who wrote these teachings down. And then, as far as I know, the earliest commentary to the root text was written by another Tibetan master of this Kadamba lineage, so the true, the authentic Kadamba lineage, tracing back to Atisha and through Dom Dumba. Then the first commentary to this text, as far as I know, was by by a little-known lama by the name of Sejibua. I don't have his dates, but he'd be way back there, probably about 900 years ago. And so I came across a manuscript of this, and so that was really the basis for the two books, the two commentaries I've written. Uh, I found something really very essential, very core, kind of almost primordial in his commentary to it, I sense a pretty direct transmission from Atisha to Domdumba to Sejibua. Um, And so it wasn't yet differentiated into a Nyingma commentary or Kagyu, Geluk, Sakya, and so forth. It was really just straight Kadamba. And so I found it really spoke to me. And so that is my primary commentary for this oral commentary here. And so it's in seven points. Let's just look through them just which is a very brief overview. First of all, the preliminaries, the kind of the foundational Dharma, then the main practice, which is cultivating ultimate and relative bodhicitta. And then really kind of the heart essence of the practice on the basis of the two bodhicittas is learning how to be a spiritual alchemist, of learning how to transmute everything that life dishes up, most of it being out of our control. But how can we, so to speak, uh, increase our digestive powers so that we can digest, assimilate, grow from whatever life's di- dishing up. And that includes both felicity, learning how to transform that into the path, as well as all manner of adversity. So that's really the kind of the heart essence of this practice. And then the fourth point is a synthesized practice for a lifetime. So how do you sum that all up in one kind of quintessential way? And then as you're practicing, the next point is the criteria for having trained the mind. That is, if you're engaging in the practice of the seven-point mind training, how do you know what it, whether it's working, whether your practice is being fruitful or not? Well, he'll tell you. Look for these marks. This indicates a successful practice. If there's, they're not, then something's not working. So that's the criteria for having trained the mind. Then there are the pledges or the samayas uh, that really provide the structure, the framework for the practice overall, and then the actual practices of mind training. So those are the seven. And then... I'd like to give just a brief anecdote of how it comes to you, that is, uh, the whole notion of lineage, of oral transmission, of a continuity from generation to generation, is very strong in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition especially, multiple so multiple traditions, but here's one, and so um, the lineage that I received is enormously meaningful to me, and so I want to just pass that on so you know where it came from. Um, And so it goes back to my own personal history, just about exactly 40 years ago. I'd been in Dharamsala at that time about two years or so. So by the time that I really decided I wanted to receive this transmission, this teaching to enrich my practice, I was already quite fluent in Tibetan. I went there to Dharamsala to totally immerse myself in it, and I did quickly. A year and a half later, so I could speak and understand pretty fluently. I had an enormous amount of help from various friends there. And so, and I think I had actually already matriculated in the Buddhist Institute of Dialectics. I was in a monastery, full training, a lot of debate, a lot of philosophical, a lot of very intellectual stuff. But in my extracurricular time, I wanted something just straight for practice that would speak right to the heart and be very practical there and then. And so I decided, well, I knew about this text, never received any teaching on it. And um, I thought, well, what Lama shall I ask for these teachings? And um, at that time, there were so few Westerners who were fluent in Tibetan, and there were really quite a number of marvelous Lama's there in Dharmazala that if we requested any teaching that we really could assimilate, that wasn't so advanced that it would be silly, uh, the Lamas on the whole were just enormously generous and happy to teach. You know? So I knew I could choose any number of Lamas. You know, If I went to them, they'd probably teach, teach me this text, uh, which is so practical. Uh, But the Lama that I chose was was not even regarded as a Lama. He wasn't a Geshe, he was not a Rinpoche, he was not a tulku. he wasn't a Kempo, he had no big title. What he was, was a man that I had met, gotten to know a little bit, but then knew a lot about by reputation. Because by that time I'd already lived in the um, Tibetan Medical Center. Tibetan Medical Center. I'd lived in the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama's personal physician's home for about a year, a bit longer than that, and then moved over to the medical center, just as a place to kind of live for a little while before I went to the monastery, because I'd already decided that's what I wanted to do. So this was kind of like a halfway house. Um, and so I lived there and learned about a man named Kungo Bashi. Kungo means like, uh, well, it's, it's the title of an aristocrat or a way of referring to an aristocrat. Kungo. Um, like count or duke or you know, something like that. But it's more generic. But he's known as Gungobashi because he was indeed an aristocrat. He was not a monk, he never been a monk. And in Tibet, he really had, the, hedonically, he had the good life. He really had a good life. He had multiple estates. He was quite wealthy. Not by Western standards, but a couple of estates. And he was a gentleman scholar. A good English tradition, I know. Well, this was also a Tibetan tradition. And what he loved to do was just devote, him, devote his life to, uh, to learning. So he would seek out one lama, he learned, he learned poetry, he learned grammar, which is quite a sophisticated discipline for Tibetan. He studied epistemology, he studied different aspects of dharma. He studied medicine. He studied a wide variety. He just had this insatiable desire for learning. And so his wife took care of all their estates, she did all the practical stuff, and let her husband be a scholar, you know? It was a pretty cool life. And he just enjoyed learning and learning and learning and letting his understanding expand. He was quite brilliant, just a natural scholar. Uh, And that would have been his life. He would have just grown old and just become riper and riper in terms of erudition and wisdom um, and just living a really pleasant life. Except for the fact that in 1950, the communists began to invade Tibet and through the 50s, while the Communists were hoping for a totally peaceful takeover that all the Tibetans would be so happy that they were taking over their whole culture, that turned out not to be the case. The 50s became increasingly violent until tremendous tragedy in 1959, the uprising and the beginning of a really the major shift into full-fledged genocide, a destruction of an entire culture. You know? uh, and among those especially targeted by the Communists were... Lamas, they were pretty much lined up and shot, and aristocrats, those who were privileged, privileged, because this was supposed to be an egalitarian society. Um, Well, Kungabashi was an aristocrat, right? And so his family, like all of the other aristocratic families, was targeted, and he had to flee for his life. He he and his wife and one son, he had a number of children, I don't know exactly how many, four or five, I think. Uh, One son, he and his wife managed to escape with nothing. They just fled and managed, obviously, to get to India, leaving everything behind them, all of their wealth, their estates, his library, everything they'd acquired, including most of his children. And I don't know exact, exact numbers, but I think all of his children who stayed behind were killed. He came down to India and quite quickly, actually, Yishudundan, the doctor in, in, in whose home I lived, he took a really a primary role in reestablishing uh, education in traditional Tibetan medicine in India. He established the Tibetan Medical Center, but then withdrew into his own private clinic, and Kumo was invited to be the head instructor there. Right? So he became the chief instructor, not only of medicine, but other disciplines, other fields of knowledge taught in the Tibetan Medical Center. He knew everything. He had this tremendous erudition, and he was a consummate teacher. So he lived on about $30 a month as the, as the director and the principal instructor for this whole institute, about $30 a month to support him, his wife and his, his grown son. Uh, I visited him in his little hut. It was one little one-room wooden shack, and that's where he lived. And he lived very contentedly on his $30 a month. And so I got to know him and knew the tremendous adversity he'd been through. I mean, just... From the enormously good life, it was almost like being cast from a Deva realm to a hell realm. Just losing everything. And knowing that his own children had been murdered for doing nothing at all, except for they were his children. Um, but I met him, and I remember one of the most moving conversations I've ever had was with him, knowing his background. And he spoke to me. We're sitting in his little hut there, among those many shanties up above McLeod Guns, for those of you who know it. Uh, again, this was 40 years ago. It was really primitive really, really primitive, this is a refugee community, uh, and I was sitting with him, and there was just a, a serenity, a sense of sheer goodness, of kindness, of patience, they just filled the room, when he was in the room, I, I really can't describe it, but I think the words mean something, but as I sat with him, uh, and he made some reference to his past, and what he had what his, past, what his past had been, he said, you know, personally, I feel a real debt of gratitude to the Chinese communists. And the reason for that was that had, I, had they not come in, and he speak, I'm not speaking personally, I'm not speaking, oh, thank you for destroying our culture. He's not crazy. But I'm speaking. he said, I'm just speaking personally, and not in terms of the impact on our whole society, which is terrible. But personally, I do feel grateful, because had they not come in, and delivered what many people would call adversity to me and my family. Had that not happened, prior to that, I was taking Dharma very casually. I had a good life. It was a very comfortable life. And I studied many aspects of Dharma, but I took it casually. It was kind of like, yeah, cool. Let's study some more. Let's study some more. Study some more. It's quite easy. It's kind of a very comfortable approach to Dharma. But without really immersing myself in it, without really taking it utterly to heart, but because I experienced the adversity at the hands of the Chinese communists, and I'm now here, and having lost so much, now I see, because of the kindness of the, of the communists, now I see the tremendous value of dharma. And had they not done that, I'd still be skirting on the surface. You know? And as he spoke, I, I, I had a very clear sense he completely meant everything he was saying. That he transformed terrible adversity, by almost any standard, terrible adversity, and transformed it all into his practice. I never saw a, f- a hint of resentment or anger. And that one son that managed to escape with him, I got to, we were friends, uh, and he, whether it was post-traumatic stress disorder, I don't know, but he repeatedly had psychotic episodes, was institutionalized uh, in Indian mental asylums where he received very severe shock therapy, uh, I knew him when he was out of therapy, and then he had another breakdown. He went back to a mental asylum, and there he killed himself. And so he lost all his children. Right? Uh, he lost pretty much everything, and yet he transmuted everything into Dharma. And I thought, well, here's a man I'd like to learn Lojong from. because This man really has practice. You know? So his name is Kungabashi. That lineage has come from him. He actually wrote his own commentary to the Seven Point Mind Training. Because this was really his core practice. So the proof is in the pudding, we say in English. Uh, Do these practices work? Or are they just really very cool to think about? And I just witnessed him. and I said, okay, well, there's all the proof I need. If you can take that adversity and come out with no anger, hatred, resentment, come out with contentment and, and happiness and fulfillment. And then he just devoted himself to his students. And they adored him. Because I lived in the medical uh, center with these young uh, medical students. It was a six-year very intensive training. And everybody who knew him just adored him. There was just such kindness and just giving and giving and giving. His whole life was just sharing whatever he could with his students and everybody around him. So I thought, "Wow, there's an example. There's somebody I'd really deeply like to emulate. And so the lineage comes from him. So all I can do is pass on. I've not experienced anything remotely like the adversity that he has. But now you know a real source. Gungobashi is your teacher here. And right back to Dom Dumba, back to Atisha, it doesn't get any better than that. Okay. So um, I'm going to stop quite quickly now and just read the, uh, the first line, the first, uh, the first of the aphorisms. And you know, I've been working uh, over the last couple of days kind of polishing, formatting these notes. It's now how many pages? 22 pages. Um, they're not perfect, but I think they're good enough. And I'll probably almost certainly be polishing, revising, adding, and subtracting over the next four weeks. But any of you would like to have this kind of a study guide, a kind of a platform for your own discursive meditations. Of course, you have all kinds of commentaries, but this is only 22 pages in outline form. Um, I think I'll just go ahead and make these available. So I'll put these on my thumb drive, give them to people at the front desk. This, and then a much shorter file, just four pages of just the root text itself. Okay, so there's a quintessence. Here's some quintessence just with my own notes and so forth uh, that you're to allude to. And so you can just download, the, You can, um, if you have, a uh, what do they call them, iPads, iPad or laptop, anything like that. Or if you'd like them to, uh, just ask them to print out copies. In fact, before you do that, you might uh, just collectively, uh, just, and you know, how many, why don't we just do it right now? Uh, anybody, would, anybody would like a, um, a printed copy? It's 22 pages. And they'll charge you for, they'll just put it on your tab, you know, along with your laundry and so forth. So why don't we just do this right now? So, okay, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I don't see any hands down. Does anybody not want one? Um, Well, okay, let's do it. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. 37, 30, that about, sounds about right. Okay, I'll just ask them to um, print up 37 copies. Pick them up there, it's gonna, cost, it's gonna be the cost of the paper basically, pick them up there. Um, does any, and of course the root text, you in the notes, uh, do this, does anybody who would like the, the 22 pages of the whole study guide or what have the outline, would any of you not like to have uh, just the four pages of the root text? Okay, I'll ask them to print up 37 copies of both. Pick them up at your leisure. And then, of course, you're also welcome just to, um, because I'll ask them to put it up on whatever kind of server or whatever they have. So if you'd like to download it, have it on on your iPad or what have you, you can have that as well. Okay? Very good. Okay. So the first line. I'm just going to read this very briefly. I want to have maybe 20 minutes for discussion. Um, And the first line is, first train in the preliminaries. First train in the preliminaries. And these are, in Tibetan, it's called lo.namji, uh, and so lo means... So let's unpack that. Lo means mind, intellect, or also attitude. Attitude or perspective. What's your attitude towards this person? What's your perspective? How, what's your sense of this person? How do you view this person? This is lo. So when we speak of lo jong, jong means to train, to transform, and also to purify. So to shift one's attitude, to, to adopt a fresh attitude, a new perspective, another vantage point, right? Another way of viewing. And then purifying, transforming it, bringing greater maturity and wisdom to, this is really what the Lojong is all about, okay? So we have this Lo, Dot Nam, Ji. Again, the Lo means a perspective, a way of viewing, attending to something. And Dot means a reversal, like 180 degrees, opposite direction. And so four ways of turning the mind about, turning your perspective, radically shifting perspective. Nam means kind or or sort or type, and she is four. So four ways, four types of radically shifting your whole perspective on human life and existence as a whole. Okay? And so these are taught, these four are taught, like, once again, in all four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. They're very core to Buddha Dharma. There, there's nothing uniquely Tibetan Buddhist about it, or even Mahayana Buddhist about it, uh, even though this, this particular sequence of the four, I've never found it in the Pali Canon or Theravada, but you can say this is pan-Buddhist, pan-Buddhist, all right? And so they are in sequence. Uh, the, these, these are all discursive meditations, so it really calls for reflection, for pondering, for thinking deeply. Um, and the first one is really reflecting very deeply on the nature of your own personal existence, the human existence. And the name of meditation is, is meditating on the preciousness and rarity of this fully endowed human life of leisure and opportunity. Of leisure and opportunity. Really taking stock. And if you slip into that, if you really embrace that perspective on your, your existence, it is literally bringing about a revolution in your way of viewing your own identity, your own life. And I like the word revolution. I'll unpack it just a little bit. I've spent a lot of time and enjoying a lot of time studying the history of science, philosophy of science, I've studied physics. And the whole notion of revolution is very important, and it has a very, I would suggest, a very distinct meaning. Because revolution generally can mean all kinds of things. But when we speak of the revolutions in science, like the first one, the so-called Copernican, I think it's better called the Galilean Revolution, uh, of shifting, and again, it's this radical turnabout, a radical shift in your way of viewing the universe, planet Earth, and therefore, where are we, humans, in the bigger picture? And prior to Copernicus in Galileo, it was assumed very widely in Western civilization, European civilization, that planet Earth was the center of the entire cosmos. This is our home. God created us, human beings, as the center, and the stars are pretty much decorations for us, you know? And everything goes around us, the, the sun, the moon, at the planet, and the stars. All you have to do is look, and it's obvious that is what happens. The sun is rising, there it sets, set, there comes the moon, there comes the stars, the planet, and they're all moving around us. So it gave us kind of a warm and cozy feeling that God created us, we're right in the center, God's looking after us, and it's pretty much a short timeline too, 7,000 years or so. Uh, so there's one view of the whole universe and, and human, humanity's place in the universe really secure. We're we're center stage. And then Galileo comes along and already displaces us. So instead of the sun and moon going the, the, the planets, the sun, everything going around us well we have just the moon going around us but then we're going around like just one more planet. One more planet. In which case the most important thing here is we're no longer at the center. Right? We're just going around the sun. Well the sun is a big fiery ball. And so As the evidence mounted for that, Galileo was the first one to provide clear evidence that the old system was just wrong, Um, that was a revolution. You cannot, if you were previously living in that medieval Ptolemaic mode, and then you get it, you see the evidence, and you shift over to the heliocentric, the sun-centered mode, you simply cannot look at the stars, the planets, or even planet Earth in the same way ever again. Something radically has shifted and it has profound implications for human existence, right? That was a revolution. And once that revolution has occurred, you can't go back. You can't say, I think I've changed my mind. I want to think of the Earth as in the center once again. It's, it's not a revolving door, it's a one-way door. If you get it, you know you cannot go back to that old view, because it's wrong, right? And likewise, the, the Darwinian revolution, the first, the first and only great revolution in the life sciences, to think that, to move from this notion that all of these species are static. And we human beings are in a class all by ourselves. We have immortal souls. We are created in the image of God. We are separate from all the primates. They're animals, we're totally separate. That's one way of viewing. Again, a very privileged uh, kind of location or status for us human beings. We're not, like, we're not like all those other critters. They may look a little bit like us, but they're not like us. They don't have immortal souls. They don't go to heaven or hell. They're not like us their food, and then Darwin comes along, and I have to say Alfred Russell Wallace comes along. They call him Al Wallace, you know. Uh, but these two outstanding biologists simultaneously discovered, actually Darwin beat him to the punch. Darwin came up with a theory 20 years earlier. And, and Wallace came up independently 20 years later, and then they published together. Darwin really does, deserve, does, does in fact deserve the lion's share of the credit but both came up with it, but there it is. Based upon their very careful empirical research, they found that view is just wrong. Had a lot of evidence behind that, lots of research. Globally, And Wallace spent six years in Malaysia doing incredible research. But once you see that, that all of the species are in an ongoing process of mutation, they're changing, they're adapting, natural selection. Later on with Mendel and the whole insights into genetics, we see genetic mutation, natural selection, and lo and behold, we are primates. And they are our family. The chimpanzees, the gorillas, and so forth. They're family, and we're all in the process. Well, once you get that, once you see the evidence is extremely compelling, then you can't go back. You can't go back. Well, that that creates enormous challenges. If you thought that you, we, as a species alone, have immortal souls. So what are you going to do? Give up a mortal soul or say the chimpanzees have them too? And then that goes right down to aphids and cockroaches and so forth. Um, which way are you going to go? And Darwin went one way. He just gave up all religion. He said, can't believe it anymore. And so we really are animals and that's it. Life means termination, get over it. You know. And that's been pretty much the direction of modern science since then. Although not of all scientists by any means. Many, many scientists are devout Christians, Jews and so forth. Uh, but again, it's a revolution. The the third one, which I'll just allude to with one sentence, when Max Planck and Einstein came along, quantum mechanics, relativity theory, well, that kind of changed everything too. And I won't elaborate, but once you get it, once you see the the, the evidence that was there and the breakthroughs of quantum mechanics and then relativity to parallel fields, uh, that actually changed everything in terms of our (laughs) fundamental notion of space, time, matter, and energy. You cannot go back to classical physics if you've understood quantum mechanics and relativity. It's a one-way door. And if you get through that, then you see, whoa, this is a much stranger and much more interesting world than was widely accepted in the 19th century. It's a revolution. Well, so I just gave three. But you get it that you're, you're, all of these three were lojong, that is not necessarily purification, but a radical shift or a do. A total reversal, something radically shifted. There's absolute space, time, matter, energy. That's the absolute, objective, inherently real constituents of the physical universe. Uh, No, it's not. That's a pretty core assumption to believe about matter, energy, and so forth, and then say, well, actually, that's not true. In fact, it was all along not true. And it leaves a lot of open questions. Quantum mechanics is a revolution in process. It's not finished, right? And so, view of human existence, this is where I'm going to stop. It's already 544. Uh, I'm going to stop right there. We'll pick up with, with this tomorrow. But it is ever so easy. If one not encountered any particular form of dharma, just kind of raised, going with the flow of modernity, to take for, for, take for granted. Well, I'm a human being. What else would I be? You know, I'm just human being. And kind of let, let the life slip by. I was sitting in a, I think it was a train a little while ago, and I, I, so there were some young people, really young, like in their, teen, teen, in their teens, uh, just a group of ha- young, ha- happy young kids. And one of them said, we have only one life to live. We may as well, well have fun. You know? Not a, not a unique view, you know? And I didn't jump up and I said, you might want to rethink that. I just, you know, they weren't asking for my advice, so I just kept, kept my own counsel. But that's a common view. You have only one life, have fun, get old, get die. get over it. Uh, and from that view, which is pretty much single-pointedly focused on the finding hedonic well-being and avoiding hedonic suffering. And hedonic suffering is once again, uh, I can't even call it, well, hedonic stimulus-driven suffering. Doing everything we can to avoid circumstances that make us unhappy and to find circumstances that make us happy and think this is the only life there is, okay? Okay. How about a total revolution that radically shifts that around 180, 180 degrees, that your very attitude to your existence is deeply and irreversibly changed? That's what Buddhism is inviting. He said the evidence is there. The evidence has been replicated, confirmed, reconfirmed 1,000 times, 10,000 times, that that view is simply wrong. This is the only life. It's over, terminated. Got that one wrong. It still is a widely spread widespread assumption in the mind sciences, especially, that the mind is simply a product of the brain. Well, they got that one wrong. They just got that one wrong. And if what I just said is true, it changes everything. Nothing is the same. And so I have really spent about 20 years trying to investigate this from every angle I can, from modern physics, neuroscience, philosophy of mind, psychology, looking, what's your best shot? I know what the materials have to say. I've heard it for a long time, my whole life. But what's your evidence? Why do you believe that? Uh, And if they had a really compelling argument, I'd have to go with it. But my conclusion is, they don't. And the most compelling evidence, both reasoning and evidence that I've seen, is what I'm sharing here. Uh, I think it's true. And if it is true, it changes everything. Nothing is the same. Nothing is the same. And that's the very first point. To radically shift your your basic stance, your attitude, your perspective on your own existence and to recognize that it's as it were, you're sitting on a gold mine and the gold mine is yours. But unless you recognize it and unless you pick up a shovel, you can be sitting on immense wealth, unimaginable wealth. But if you don't know it's there and you don't have a shovel, then you can die in poverty. Okay? And that gold mine is your own mine and the natural resources of your own mind. Inconceivable. But you need to know it it's there. And you need to know to get your shovel to make it manifest and derive benefit from it. To have a life where you have the leisure to explore these inner resources. And you're not always, every single moment of the day, struggling for survival. And have the opportunity to explore those inner resources by having a skillful instructors, good spiritual friends, teacher, and so forth. Having those two, the leisure and the opportunity. Well, they say that's more, more valuable than a wish-fulfilling jewel. And a wish-fulfilling jewel is one where you just direct your attention to it, and it will provide you with any hedonic pleasure you like. Anything. It's a wish-fulfilling jewel. It's, a, it's a, the genie's lantern and so forth. Anything you want, hedonically, there it is. Just snap your fingers, shazam, there it is. Well, they said, this life that you have right now is of greater value than having a wish-fulfilling job." And it's literally true. So we have a few minutes. Uh, that's a very brief introduction. Questions or comments about anything we've covered thus far? We will have more time for discussion. But again, this was the first time. We'll start with you, Cam- Camila. And, and the microphone's coming. We'd like to share this. And oh, by the way, by the way, if you have any questions that you would like to pose in this context, because after all, 15 minutes a week, one-on-one, is rather skimpy. But if you have any questions that you wouldn't mind having me address in public, but you'd like it to be private, in other words, I won't address you by name, write them down, write them down. And I will read them publicly, but don't put your name on it, because I might just read that and then blurt it out. So that's a special kind of question, but uh, even in the the, the six interviews I had today, a number of questions came up. They said, oh, I'd really like to save this for everybody, because it's relevant to everyone here, okay? So if they're personal issues, it may be very deeply personal and private, but, but if you wouldn't mind having them public without any reference to you, then the benefit goes to everybody who can listen, okay? But if you, but you ask here with a microphone, uh, then it's live. So people will be able to listen to you. So to Kamala, right over here, please. We two microphones. Say, I couldn't quite hear. But j- well, the microphone, just coming. <laughs> I can't quite get you. I just wanted to know the name of the, um, the word you said at the beginning, Lo-something. Lo-jong? Lo-jong. Jong. It's really easy. Not all Tibetan words are easy to write in English or in English, you know, English letters. This, one is, this one's very easy. Uh, in American pronunciation, L-O-J-O-N-G. Lo-jong. So Lo is attitude. That's why um, the, the um, how do you say, the title Buddhism with an attitude. Okay. Well, with an attitude is really suggesting Well, this is what actually what it's all about. Buddhism with an attitude that we transform, we shape, we mold by adopting fresh perspectives and bringing about revolution after revolution. Because in that scientific sense of the term, that's what Dharma practice is really about. It's gaining insight into such core features of reality that time and time again we're having our life just turned over again. And then turned over and said, oh, that was, oh the third revolution is coming and a fourth revolution is coming. Uh, but it's... From the inside out, it's not simply an intellectual stance. It is a fundamental core, existential way of shifting our view, our perspective on reality itself. So, lo is that perspective, that attitude, and zhong is a kind of a training, a practice, a purification, a transformation. All of those bundled into one term, lo zhong, good. Anything else coming up? Also with respect to settling body, speech, and mind, that's going to be our platform for all of the meditations. Um, the breath is really key to that. Uh, and just one, one liner here, uh, there's going to be a theme that comes up a lot in this eight weeks. I'll refer, it sometimes to, uh, refer to it as the discovery model, a discovery approach to spiritual practice, where it's more a matter of undoing, of not doing, rather than doing new things that we've not done before, rather stop doing things that we have been doing habitually for a very long time. And finding that a major aspect of spiritual maturation, of growth, of realization, comes from backing off rather than plunging forward. Uh, comes from releasing habitual types of activity rather than adopting new types of activity. Both have a place for sure. Uh, but in this discovery approach, which, which is really very characteristic of Dzogchen, the great perfection, of the Zen tradition, very discovery-oriented, The um, Mahamudra tradition, again, very discovery-oriented. There's a theme here that I'll refer to among those three traditions, the one I know best, Dzogchen, a theme that comes up again and again and again. And that is when we're engaging in the practice, then the afflictions of the mind, the obscurations of the mind, they are (coughs) rangdol. When we find the right poise, when we position ourselves correctly and stop doing an awful lot, then the afflictions, the obscurations of the mind, dissolve of their own accord. They release themselves. And we discover through this process, and we'll be doing this a lot in the meditations, of, find, of discovering through our own experience the natural healing properties of the mind, that the mind has an extraordinary capacity to heal, to, heal, to balance, to untangle a knot itself. That's a very, very core theme of Chen. But as it is true of the mind, but we need to be skillful to learn how to stop doing a lot of stuff that we're already doing that's preventing that natural healing and release from taking place. Likewise in the body, we already know, just anybody who's been alive for a while, that the body does have an extraordinary capacity to fight off bacteria, viral infections. If you just set a bone, it can set and you know a broken bone, it can set and heal, and be as strong as ever. You can get a cut. We all know this. and just keep it clean, maybe even put stitches if necessary, the and the cut heals. So we know the body does have an extraordinary capacity to heal itself, and a lot of medicine is to designed to help it do that, right? And so what we're finding here in the breathing, the breathing practice, this is a type of natural pranayama. Pranayama entails a regulation of the breath to bring about greater balance, to get the energies to flow where they would optimally flow. And these are skills, the pranayama techniques, these are skills we learn from somebody who's an accomplished teacher. But this mindfulness of breathing is a mode of allowing the breath to flow naturally, without intervention, without regulation, just allowing it to flow of its own accord, and finding through that process that on this more energetic level, a subtle level, the subtle body, with the channels, the pranas, the the, the bindus and so forth, the chakras, uh, to discover there that when we allow the breath to flow of its own accord, while attending closely to it, relinquishing all control, that the kind of breath that flows from that has a very healing property to it. And so that's very integral to this practice of settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. So it's, it's very subtle. And the more, more deeply you go into it, I think the more subtle you will find it, that observing something very closely, whatever it may be, and as you attend to it very closely with a lot of interest, if it's something you can regulate, you can modify, chances are you will. You know? Whatever it is, your own children's behavior, whatever it may be, if you can regulate it, you probably will. Just, just habitually, obsessively, compulsively, we tend to want to get there and take charge. You know, I think I can do this better. You know? uh, but to attend closely to the breath, ever so closely, and actually even at the subtlest level, release any preference, any regulation, any effort, just allow that breath to flow without intervention. That's a subtle skill, to learn how to breathe egolessly. Very useful. Okay. So that's built into this settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Very helpful. So, anything else coming up? We have a few minutes left. We don't have to stay here. Good. I think I'm finished for, t- for the time being. Tomorrow we'll pick up on this discursive meditation. Uh, probably tomorrow, by tomorrow we'll have all of the, um, these two, the, the root text and the, the outline printed up. We'll continue. I think I'll get one for myself as well so I don't have to lug my computer in and out every day. So, good. Well, it's almost dinner time. It's almost six. So enjoy your dinner and I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, I have a bit more. I have three minutes. I'm going I'm to hold on to them. Three minutes. I need to give you some homework, right? Uh, And I'll do this periodically over the eight weeks. And the homework here is to make a very smooth and restful transition from the waking state to falling asleep tonight, okay? So what I would strongly encourage you, make this a habit. It's a really good habit during retreat and (coughs) post-retreat of not going directly from your activities of the day Maybe it's work, maybe it's entertainment, maybe it's conversation, watching television, whatever it may be, but not making an abrupt transition. Okay, that's good. Okay, bedtime, brush your teeth and boom, try to fall asleep, you know? But rather have a mediator there, some transition time. And so what I would suggest for tonight is after you've finished everything for the day, everything you wanted to do for the day is already done, including brushing your teeth, whatever you may do uh, before getting into bed, and so you're in your bed, and so you really have only one task to do now, and that is fall asleep and get a good night's sleep. Well, don't go there immediately. Is when you get into bed, having finished everything for the day, so the day's work is over, what I would invite you to do is go into the Savasana, the supine position, the shavasana, the corpse position, in bed, under the covers, and with a nice pillow under your head. And then for some time, and whether it's three minutes, five minutes, or 20 minutes, do this settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state, Go into this awareness that is permeating the field of the body. Attend to the earth element, and that is the sensations of firmness and solidity. And there's a lot of it, because you're, you're from the back of your head down to your heels, there's a lot of contact with your mattress. And so let your awareness sink down into the, the lower side of your body where it's in contact with the mattress. And resting there, letting awareness become grounded throughout the body and not congealed or gathered up in the head, but really diffused through the whole body, And then just breathe and just breathe and breathe in every out-breath, releasing and releasing, melting, melting, releasing thoughts, letting go, letting go. And just more and more deeply relaxing, (coughs) more and more deeply relaxing. And very gently, sustain the clarity, but don't make a big deal out of it because you're probably tired, you're probably really ready for bed. So this is more... It is shamata. that is, you're not just trying to fall asleep, you're doing your final session for the day. But when you do feel, and, and, and my, in my experience, I feel it quite distinctly, usually. I think, oh, I just lost my edge. Because I'm sleepy and I need a good night's sleep now. When you see that the mind is kind of losing that clarity, you're starting to slip into sleepiness, then welcome it. It's time to go to bed. You're, you're, you're in bed already. So as soon as you see, it's kind of going into drifting into sleep in that direction now. I've lost the clarity. Then what I invite you to do, shift your position. That is, don't, be, don't remain in the Shavasana. But shift the position, what, what, your sleeping position, on your side, however it may be. But do something different. So mentally, you're kind of snapping your fingers. My shamatha session just finished. Because I'm no longer trying to maintain balance. I'm now ready to fall asleep. Bring the session to a close shift your position, and then get a good night's sleep. So it's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Okay. So that's it. But it makes a very nice transition. So you're not bringing the clutter of the day, the rumination you know, and the work of the day and so forth. You're not trying to bring that into your sleep, but create a nice a little hiatus there, a little interval that's free of the activities of the day, but not yet sleepy, not yet falling asleep. Very smooth transition. Okay. So try that your homework. And I'll see you tomorrow morning. So, and again, continue socializing. This is these two, two days, they to get to know each other before we go into general silence. So, All good.